Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. I am your co-host, Christopher Hurtado. With me is my co-host, Riley Risto. Hello, Riley. Hello, hello. Good to have you with me, as always. Today, we're going to talk about the ideas of René Girard. René Girard is a cultural anthropologist and literary theorist. I think I can say he's a literary theorist, right? Yeah. And he's he's come to our attention. How did he come to your attention, Riley? Well, he's a peace guy. And I think I was just looking for more peace texts within the LDS um the academic community, and, and I came across a guy named Max Sterling who wrote a, a dialogue journal article on on this guy named Rene Girard, and and I've heard about this mimetic theory for a long time. I had no idea what the what the source of mimesis was that people talk about. You hear about it in intellectual dark web discussions and debates about mimetic theory and. But I never really knew the source of it until I came across Gerard, and now it's just a deep dive for me. I've been going into him for weeks now, and it's been awesome. I'm glad I asked you that question because I couldn't remember until I heard your story how I heard about him. I think it was when you said dark web, that for some reason that made me think of Peter Thiel. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he has anything to do with yeah, the dark web, but Peter Thiel uh, was, I think, a student of Rene Gerard's. He certainly traffics in Gerard's ideas. Peter Thiel is someone who reads a lot. And uh, I remember reading a book about him written by Ryan Holiday uh, that mentions this. Okay, so there's that's Gerard and, and who he is. He's a Frenchman. He's deceased. I don't remember his dates. Fairly recently, though, within the last like five, ten years, he passed away. Yeah. yeah. And he's... Um, his, best known for his theories of mimetic violence. So mimesis, of course, goes all the way back to, you can read about mimesis in Plato, right? But mimetic violence, right? This is the, the crux of Girard's theory, right? Is that violence is mimetic. So what we'd like to do today is to introduce his ideas. And we're going to recommend, for those interested in reading more, that you start with a book called I See Satan falling like lightning. Did I get that right? I yeah. see Satan falling. I see Satan fall like lightning by Rene Girard, translated by James G. Williams. James G. Williams, the translator, also wrote a foreword to this book in which he gives a 10-point summary of Girard's ideas, of his theory. And so we're going to avail ourselves of those 10 points and discuss them in our own words. But you can find uh, what James Williams has to say about Gerard's ideas summarized in the foreword to I See Satan Fall Like Lightning, or read the book and find out uh, straight from the horse's mouth, right, from Rene Gerard himself. 
And of course, he's got many, many books that he wrote all right. on this topic from different perspectives and about different subjects. And this may not be the ideal book itself to start with, but for sure, read the foreword, read the 10 points, get the get the outline of what mimetic theory is, mimetic violence. And then, you know, if you want to re finish reading the book, great, or if there's some other topic or subject that would appeal to you from his vast library of things that he wrote, go ahead, but uh, for sure read this forward. Yeah, I think it is a good place to start there. His most famous books are Violence and the Sacred, probably, and Things Hidden Since the Beginning of the World or Since the Foundation of the World, something like that. And of course, there's the article you mentioned, Riley, the, the dialogue article by Max Sterling. Yeah, that's a good one to approach it from an LDS perspective, right? Right. Yeah, it's written for an LDS audience, so that's helpful too. Yeah. Okay, so let's go into the theory of mimetic violence and let's see how this works. We're just going to use the questions that are raised by James Williams that he himself answers, but we're going to give our own answers. So the first question is, what is the chief identifying characteristic of human beings? Now, you know, I go to Aristotle. You know, I read that question, I think, oh, we're the rational animals, right? <laughs> That's not what Gerard is saying, right? He's saying the chief identifying characteristic of human beings is that our desires are mimetic. In other words, we, th we may think that our desires are unique to us, uh, but it turns out that our desires are imitative. We want what other people want. Now, when I mentioned this to Ben before we recorded on John 7 through 10, where we have the story of the woman taken in adultery and we applied uh, mimetic uh, violence, you know, the theory of mimetic violence of René Girard to that story. Ben said, well, what do you mean? I, I desire food because I'm hungry. Well, let me explain. I don't mean that you desire food. That is a biological desire. I mean, what kind of food you desire depends on what other people around you are eating, right? Um, if you desire falafel, it may be that you are growing up in the Middle East. If you desire hot dogs and apple pie, you may be growing up in America and the United States, right? Yeah, and I'll just uh, try to clarify one point. In asking this question, again, I'll restate the question, what is the chief identifying char characteristic of human beings? The question is not being asked so as to contrast us with animals or set us apart from animals. Right. Rather, like it's, a, it's like a recognition that we are animals. Because the chief identifying characteristic of animals is that they compete for whatever resources are in their biosphere, right? They compete for food. They compete for mates. They com compete for territory. And so it's, a, it's an actual recognition that we are part of that kingdom and we have the same motives. And so a, maybe even – I don't want to presume this is a better way to ask it, but it's another way to ask the question would be – what is the primary motive of human existence or something like that where it says what motivates humans and it's it's this idea of of imitation and, and competition for whatever right yeah again the idea that that desire is mimetic right that we don't our desires aren't as original as we might have thought right that we actually want what other people want i gave an example on our sister podcast on Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me of the time that I couldn't sleep. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning. It's winter in Utah. I wanted to go for a walk. So I went to Walmart. They're open all night. I could just walk around. I had a seven-inch tablet, Android tablet. I had a 10-inch iPad. And now Apple has an eight-inch 
you know, iPad mini. I'd heard about it. Not interested. I already have a seven inch and a 10 inch. It's either too big or too small. What, what good would that do me until I saw it? Right. And then, and then when I saw it and then when I touched it, then I just had to have it. Right. It works something like that. You don't have people in the sticks desiring iPads because they've never even seen one. But if they saw one, and especially if their neighbor wanted one, the neighbor meaning the person who's close to them, family members, members of their clan or tribe, then they'd want one. And and what even ramps that desire up to the next level is when someone who has any amount of prestige wants one. Because we right. want we want what the tribal leader wants, we want what the actor wants, we want what the president or the king or whoever is famous, we always want what they want. And that essentially is the foundation of all advertising and marketing. That's what I was going to say. This is where this is how propaganda works, mm-hmm. right? What we call commercials in American English, I would call propaganda. That's how it works. Yeah, they're just an accommodation of desire. And so there, so we're going to see, you know, that uh, whatever, the guy who has the best looking gal, uh, he also happens to have a Mercedes. Therefore, if we buy a Mercedes, we will have a good looking gal. Because, you know, when I think of this, you know, the next question, right? Uh, I immediately think of cavemen wanting the same woman. You would tell us about the next question, Riley. All right. So the next question is how does mimetic desire lead to conflict and violence? Yeah. See, there it is. Yeah. Bunga bunga, me want that girl. And then you say, bunga bunga, me want the same girl, right? And now all of a sudden we have a conflict. And, and something that's interesting about that is uh, the the thing that's desired may, again, we, we always kind of like point to this idea of intrinsic value. The thing that's desired may have no other intrinsic value aside from the fact that someone else wants it. And so we have this- Well, that's not intrinsic at all, right? Right, exactly. That, that's yeah. extrinsic, right? It's created by the circumstances. Uh, the circumstance that somebody else desires it, and that creates desire within us. And so it's an innate uh, sense of comp, uh, competitiveness that drives us to want the same thing as someone else. It, and you see this best, best illustrated in, in small children as they begin to express their most base human instincts. You'll see a two-year-old who's perfectly happy with their toy. What it, let's say it's a toy truck. They're completely content and at peace with that toy truck. They're having a great time. And they look across the room and they see another two-year-old playing with something else. And immediately they walk over and they want that thing and they pull it out. And, and, and of course, the other two-year-old would have been happy with their toy or any other toy. But the fact that someone grabbed it from them, hey, that was mine. And they freak out. And all of a sudden, you've got a, a screaming war between two two-year-olds. And so that's that's like a very basic expression of this most um, human of traits, right? This This desire. That's a good example. We've all seen it. We've all we've all been it, right? So the next question would be, what does Gerard mean by scandal? Now, this is coming out of nowhere for the listener, right? Because we haven't read Gerard. Uh, you haven't read Gerard. You haven't uh, run across scandal. I'll tell you, the same thing happened to me uh, when I was reading Matthew 11. It, it didn't happen to me when I read Gerard because... I remembered reading Matthew 11. So what I read in Matthew 11 was something like, and this is in the Sarah Rudin translation from Modern Library, something like, happy is he who's not tripped up by me. This is Jesus speaking. 
Happy is he who is not tripped up by me. The King James Version reads something like, blessed is he who is not offended by me. And I thought, no, that's different, right? That's what, what is she, why is she saying tripped up? Offended, I get. Tripped up, I'm not sure why she's saying that. So I looked up the Greek and I found skandalon, which is scandal. And it turns out that scandal is coming from a Greek word. Pull up my etymology here. It turns out skandalon is coming from a Greek word that means snare, which is another biblical term, right? Or stumbling block. The Latin is scandalum, a cause of offense. And then it goes through Old French scandal, and it gives us our idea of scandal, which is maybe a little bit different from what Gerard means here. So Gerard is going back to the biblical language, and that's important for where we're going with this, right? Because he's going to say that the Bible is giving us a message different from that which we see in other myths or in myths. If he distinguishes between the Bible and myths, then we can say in other myths. But we'll come to that. Yeah. And the last question, you know, it was asking about violence and and how desire is related to violence. Well, I think that that, that feeds right into this next question about Satan. Satan being the father of like lies for one, but also kind of the father of enmity, which is that kind of competitiveness that one against another and scandal is brought is brought about by primarily desire. The desire that I have that you also share makes you as a person, even though you're not the source of my desire, you become my stumbling block right. to getting that thing that you have that I want. So that shared desire makes me judge you as an en- as an enemy, and I have enmity against you because of the thing that you desire, which I also desire. So we'll have to come back to why Jesus said that he might be a stumbling block and that that would be a problem, right? Because if he's saying happy is he who, right? Blessed is she who, it would be better if, right? It's because he doesn't want to be a stumbling block. Why would he say that? We'll come back to that. Hmm. Okay. So the next one is, how is mythology related to Satan and scandal? And you may have more insight on this. You've got a a deeper foundation in ancient mythology. But essentially, this story is not new. This The biblical story about uh, about Satan, by a different name, of course, the accuser. Well, what is Satan? The accuser. right. Right. Yeah. Satan as his title, the accuser. That story is told in all mythology, right? You've got uh, a one group and you've got another group, or you've got one group with a few outliers within the group. And in order for that group to survive and coalesce around each other and have unity and peace, it's necessary for them to excise the, the problem, whatever that problem is. And, and so they have to exile a person or they have to go to war against the other essentially they've got to eliminate whatever the problem is. And before they can do that, there has to be a process of sort of dehumanization and making that that thing that used to be within, without. We talk about Satan as uh, as if Satan were a person. That's not really how Gerard sees Satan. Satan is rather that, again, as Riley's pointed out, the idea that you are tripped up by competing desires, right? And so Satan is the spirit of enmity, right? The accusing spirit, right? If we're going to go from Satan to the next question where we ask, 
how is mythology related to Satan and scandal, then we'll see that connection, right? How that satanic idea, right? That accusatory idea leads to scandal and eventually scapegoating. So I'll share a story, Riley, from ancient mythology, right? This is a story from the time of Jesus. I mentioned on our sister podcast on Latter-day Peace Studies Presents, Come Follow Me, that there were other people around the time of Jesus, of Nazareth, who were also going around healing people, and they were also divinized, right? They were also, they were doing the same kinds of things Jesus were doing and and to the same result, right? How does this work? And what are the parallels? And what are the reasons for this? And we'll go more into this as we go through these points. But here's the story of Apollonius of Tiana. This story can be found in Philostratus. There is a plague. Now, a plague makes me think right away of two things. The plague in Athens, in Oedipus Rex, in that myth, and also a plague, a bubonic plague, right? Think, you know, my kids and I all watched the Great Courses course on the plague during the the pandemic that we just went through. And we learned all about how that upended, you know, Renaissance Florence and changed everything. So you can have, just like healing I've mentioned on our sister podcast, is a social phenomenon, whereas curing is a physical one, right? So healing is, oh, nobody will talk to you because you have leprosy. Well, what is leprosy? Leprosy is just a word that's used in the Bible that could be any number of skin conditions, which by the way, aren't contagious, but were thought to be. Right? All of them were thought to be one thing, leprosy, and it was thought to be contagious. And most importantly, it made one ritually impure. So now nobody will talk to you if you have leprosy. Nobody wants to touch you. Nobody wants to get anywhere near you. And what does Jesus do? He heals you. Again, a social phenomenon. He comes up to you, someone of status, by the way. Whatever you think of Jesus, he's at least a great rabbi, right? So here comes this great rabbi, and he's going to say, nobody else will walk with you, but I'll walk with you. He puts his arm around you. Nobody else will eat with you. I'll eat with you. And so he's bringing people back into society. And this is really important to this theory of mimetic violence, too, because those people on the fringes of society were most likely to end up scapegoats. And that is the case in the story of the of Apollonius of Tiana. But first, back to the plague in Athens. The plague in Athens, I've always assumed, was something like the bubonic plague. But it turns out it could have been a social plague. Right? If there's strife in a community, that in itself can be called a plague. So we don't have to assume something physical, right, akin to that needs to be cured, but rather something that needs to be healed. And so Apollonius, in the midst of this plague in this city, goes to a place where, by the way, there's a statue of Heracles. And so this is a sacred place, a place of reverence to the gods. And there's a beggar. And the, uh, these kind of beggars were actually kept around at the public expense in places like ancient Greece for this purpose. Uh, now, the beggar's not there for this purpose, but he's kept around by the others for this purpose. The beggar's there trying to get someone to take pity on him, right? To give him something to eat or whatever. And he's just begging, right? And, the, and Apollonius comes and says, stone him. Stone him? I mean, I would react the same way. Why would we stone this poor guy? Right? Would you stone him, Riley? No, heck no. I'd give him a piece of bread. (laughs) Right, give him a piece of bread. But Apollonius says, he's the reason the gods are angry. That's why there's a plague. The gods are angry with us because of this guy. Now, you still need someone to cast the first stone. And this is where this story can be related to the story of the woman taken in adultery. You need a model. Again, violence is mimetic. 
Yeah, and I just want to cut in and, and offer this idea, which we can get into a little later on a on a later point that we'll discuss, but introduce here, and that is that Satan can do none of this stuff by himself. That's right. He he's he's simply he's a he's like a parasite for our own human desires. So he he might, you know, nudge us in a direction, and I'm using, you know, a he pronoun just for convenience here, but but this accusation is what nudges us forward, but someone still has to cast that stone. Someone still like someone can say he's the problem, kill him. But until someone actually tosses a stone, that person is not a scapegoat yet. He's not a victim yet. So Satan is kind of the, the accusing spirit doesn't have to be an actual being. It can be an accusing spirit but it takes one of us humans with bodies and, and souls to toss a rock and turn that person into a scapegoat. Well, Riley, does Satan have any being? I mean, from, a, from an LDS theological position, which we can discuss later on a little bit, Satan doesn't have a body. He can do nothing of, him, of himself, but only the power that we allow him to have through our actions is sort of personifies him or anthropomorphizes him. And from Gerard's ideas, you know, we get that Satan, again, has no actual being, no actual existence other than a parasitical one, right? So in other words, usually we think of him as being parasitical of God, but also parasitical of us. His being is borrowed, right? He doesn't have uh, his own being, so to speak. So in this story of Apollonius of Tiana, Someone does cast the first stone. Once someone casts the first stone, there's a model, and the second follows, and then the third. And at this point, the beggar looks up. And when he looks up, what do the people waiting stones in hand see in his eyes? Defiance. In fact, demonic possession. Yeah, I mean, as soon as we have established that we're enemies, we see in each other nothing but evil. We only, we don't see ourselves. We see the other. We have sufficiently and successfully otherized that person. We've made them an enemy where there wasn't one before. So in other words, you were just looking at me and I saw something in your eyes that's not really there, right? This poor beggar, what, what's, what, what's actually in his eyes? Why are you stoning me, right? But what they see is, oh, he really is possessed with a demon. Now the stones start to rain down on him. By the way, what do you end up with after all these stones are thrown? A pile of stones, an altar, a place of worship, right? In this story, this story doesn't actually go all the way. You do, you do have a statue, though, to complete the cycle, right? There's, there's already a statue of a god there. Yeah, I'll just uh, toss in here sort of a, a correlate to this uh, story that you're telling. During the witch trials of the Reformation period and thereafter, they would always try these witches by some kind so-called. of— So-called. Yeah, so-called witches. They would try them uh, by a, a physical means of torture, and if they survived the torture without confessing, well, then they were true and not witches— which made them the purest of all pure because they could put up with the level of torture that was being inflicted upon them. And so they were almost sort of like divinized or canonized or made saintly in, in some way. But if they, if they gave up and in the torture um, confessed to something that they didn't do or, or weren't, 
that they weren't witches, well, then it only proved that they were. And so it's just an interesting parallel because, you know, I, I get where you're going with this. The pile of stones being an altar, which we then commemorate the um, this beggar as a savior right. of the tribe, right? Yes, And in the exactly. same way, the witch becomes the savior of the community because either either she was so pure that she didn't she didn't cop to being a, a witch or she was so evil that she did cop to it and we've ridded ourselves of the problem so either way right it, it, but there's there's a subtle irony either way that the witch is our savior yeah so that's where this story doesn't quite go all the way but what usually happens is remember this beggar according to the story that's told by Apollonius of Tiana, right, is the cause of all the strife in our society. And now that we've killed him, now there's no more strife. Who is this person? What manner of man is this, right? He can cause strife in a whole society and end it. He's a god, right? And so he becomes divinized. And so again, that's going to compare it to Christianity, but there's going to be a difference that Gerard's going to point out. So we'll get to that. Well, and you've got another... One one more cognate you've got to this story or correlate to this story is the woman taking adultery. You were going to discuss that. Right. Maybe. Yeah, let's go into that. How does this story compare? Again, when you have this sort of mob mentality that produces this kind of stoning, it has to be in the heat of the moment, right? One of the things that Jesus does in the story of the woman taking adultery is he slows things down. Just asking questions makes a difference. By the way, notice he doesn't look up. Nobody knows what he's writing on the ground. Here's one possible explanation. He doesn't want to look them in the eyes because look what happened to the beggar in the other story, right? When people are angry with us or when they're just angry, right? They're not angry with him. They're angry and they want to, well, they want to get him. He's actually their enemy. They want to trip him up. Why? Because they know that the law of Moses says, if they found someone take, you know, they take someone in adultery in the very act, and they're two witnesses that they're supposed to stone them. They also know that this is illegal under Roman rule. They also know that it's not really something that Jews have been doing lately at that time, right? But they but they want to know, will Jesus have contempt for the law and say, no big deal, we don't have to stone her? Or will he go against Roman law and say, yes, stone her? And what does he say? Well, they're probably, they're trying to put him in a catch-22, of course. Exactly. And he puts them in the double bind instead. Exactly. So what does he say? Okay, you found her you know, in the act. You caught her in the act. That means, by the way, according to the, the Mosaic law, it's you who has to stone them. So how about the, the one of you that doesn't have any sin? You know, the one of you who doesn't have any error. She was caught in error. If you have no error, you cast the first stone. And what happens is interesting because it's a reversal of what we saw in the story of Apollonius Septiana. And this is intentional, I think. This is, I think this is the authorial intent, right? You see them go away one by one. By the way, who goes away first? The older guys. The they, ones who have more experience it, right? and more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I guess I really have no place judging others, right? Now, the young guys. Well, I, I want to say along with that, uh, with the experience comes the the fact that Jesus, in slowing things down, is trying to get these guys to contemplate their own position. So this is a, a contemplative invitation. He basically says, uh, you who are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. And people have to think about it. Well, am I without sin? 
it's it's something again that slows things down. They have to actually think. And the moment when they start thinking instead of just being emotionally driven is is the moment when they realize they can't actually do this. Yeah, it's important to realize that this that the scapegoat mechanism doesn't work unless you've convinced yourself, right? Unless the people have convinced themselves and everybody agrees slash falls for it, right? Everybody falls for the idea that this beggar or this woman, right? That this this kind of plague, right? This kind of sin, this kind of error in our we can't tolerate this in our society because the center cannot hold, right? And so we have to do something about it. And we have to victimize this person to cleanse our society of this plague, of this sin, of this error. I just can't help. <laughs> I can't help it. We spent two years with with a plague. And how active was this scapegoat mentality and system, man, the most vociferous language being directed at those who disagreed with them and on full display during the pandemic. There's something important to that too. And again, we'll have to wait till we come to Christianity and how it's different or at least should be different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think, you know, many of the people who are wrapped up in that controversy and that scandal, right? And that satanic spirit, if you will, we're Christians. Absolutely. Yeah, they confess Christianity. Yeah. Okay. So they go away one by one. The youth, of course, are last. They're more ideological, more self-righteous. This kind of, this is not personal. If you're young and listening, this is just how it is. And it may rub you the wrong way, but which by the way, doesn't make me so wise either. It just means I'm supposed to be, right? I'm supposed to be wise. I'm old enough that I ought to be wise, but that's sort of how that works. And you can see the clear distinction between these two stories, but the distinction between mythology and the Christian story, the, the, the passion of Christ, right, are going to become wider still as we go through these points. So we're at the fifth point now, Riley. We have the question, how is mythology related to Satan and scandal? And there are two answers for this. So with the stories that we've told of Apollonius of Tiana and of the woman taken in adultery, we have, in a sense, covered the answers to this question, but I just want to bring out the two things, right, that we can say about this. One, that myths disguise real violence. What we see when we look at this story is, oh, it's not really violent. It's, as a matter of fact, you get this kind of language in the Bible. It's a situation where it's better that one man should perish than that a whole nation, right? It's just one man. It's interesting to me how that that same idea almost verbatim exists in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon, but the circumstances, at least on the surface, seem to be at odds with each other. Like one person yeah. that's uttering it is clearly in the spirit of the accuser, and the other person that's uttering it is obeying the spirit. What uh, spirit? Yeah, right? which that's spirit? the question. Which spirit, right? Is it the spirit of, of Satan, right? Uh, the accusatory spirit? Right, that's the question. If you're a little confused as to the vagary of what I'm talking about here, the, the high priest, Caiaphas, uses this justification that it's better for one man to perish than a whole nation dwindle in unbelief. He uses that justification to accuse Jesus, right? And then Nephi uses it in the Book of Mormon to justify his actions in slaying Laban. Right. And so myths are going to disguise violence in that way. And the second point related to that question, which was, again, how is mythology related to Satan and scandal? 
would be to say that, as we've kind of already alluded to, right, but to actually come out and say, and Gerard admits this, that the story of Jesus, the stories in the gospel, do look like myth. He can admit that. So let's go into the history of this a little bit. So you have the study of mythology that started as a way to, and well, comparative mythology, right? Comparing Christianity with mythology was done initially by people whose intent was to just prove, right, that Christianity is just one more myth. See, look, it looks just like mythology. And Gerard would admit it does look just like mythology, except, right, that there's this one difference that we'll come to. Yeah. So he can admit that. So that's that's number five. But he bristles against Christianity being called a myth. Yes, because of this one difference. So, all right. So the next one is, what is the role of sacrifice in Gerard's thought? And this is one that I've probably thought about more in terms of this whole mimetic theory than the rest of these points. Just because of the centrality of sacrifice as a covenant relationship within LDS theology and the the tradition of sacrifice that we study, it, it it's a little bit, it becomes more problematic and it's something you really have to think through from an LDS perspective. Uh, the very first commandment that's given as Adam and Eve leave the garden is a commandment of sacrifice, to offer sacrifices, to build an altar and offer sacrifices. That's the first commandment given outside the garden. And that, that commandment, if misconstrued, is exactly what leads people down this road of scapegoating. And so you have to form, a, you have to be able to formulate a, a difference between what true sacrifice or what the intended the intent of godly sacrifice would be and what the imitation would be what the the satanic imitation of sacrifice with counterfeit would look like right so that this is something i've thought a lot about um the very first sacrifice that takes place after the generation of adam and eve that we have recorded is a sacrifice of abel by cain and this is so interesting to me because they both offer the best of what they have Cain offers the the first fruits of the field, and Abel offers the first uh, of his flock, firstborn of his flock. This is, I mean, one's a farmer, one's a hunter, and and you could go into mythology a little bit and say, well, okay, this is representational. Cain representing uh, the farmer agricultural uh, evolution of mankind and the formation of society, which of course he does form the first city. Right, so he's the founder of civilization, and then Abel representing the hunter-gatherer class, which is passing away with the advent of agriculture and cities and whatnot. So it can be fully symbolic, but what you have here is the death of one at the hands of another, so a sacrifice. Yeah, and this isn't the only founding murder story to right. civilization, right? We have so many stories of civilizations founded. This is the founding of civilization, right? It's murder. You have Romulus and Remus, who, by the way, are twins. So twi twins are really a problem for mimetic violence theory, right. right? If you have twins, then they're going to have the same desire, and that's going to be a problem. So right away, you have to eliminate one twin. That's another aspect of this. Well, and in some some mythology, um, that actually happens. A, a twin will kill, so like Romulus and Remus, for instance, right? But in the societies that have these rituals around twins or beliefs around twins, sometimes they'll kill the twins or they'll kill just one twin as a way right. of eliminating the 
mimetic desire problem, right? And scapegoating one and preferring the other. So a lot, oftentimes it'll be the firstborn that's maintained or retained and the, the younger that will be killed. So yeah, exactly. So twins are a problem only because they represent or become a symbol for mimetic desire and violence. There's another interesting point that Gerard goes into that might be worth mentioning here. And that is that oftentimes the scapegoat can be the king. We think of the king, uh, we think of kings as tyrannical. There are tyrannical kings. That's a possibility. But I I remember this book I read. um, I don't remember the it was an excerpt from a, a longer book. I read the excerpt, which was called "From Monarchy to From Monarchy to Aristocracy to Democracy." That was the title, and that sounds pretty good, right? Progress, right? But then comes the subtitle: "A Tale of Moral Folly and Decay." And you think, wait a minute, I've lost the plot. I thought this book was about progress from monarchy to democracy. But it actually was making the case that kings were more answerable to the people, not only than we think. But then democracies are, right? Then, then, then they are. The leaders and democracies are actually less accountable. So the king himself was responsible and could be scapegoated. If things weren't going well, it's the king's fault and he would be killed. By the way, kings didn't get sick. No. They never got sick. They didn't last right? that long. <laughs> well, what I meant to say, that was tongue in cheek. That's one way to look at it. Another way is, if they became sick, they were, they were killed, poisoned, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we can't have a sick king. The king has to be, right, generative and protective. This is the archetypal king. And so he's responsible and can end up being the scapegoat himself. Yeah, it's interesting. Kings were always a very tenuous position. Um, it, it's it's ironic that people would aspire to be the king. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a power aspiration, obviously. It's a desire for power. Um, but it's ironic because so few of them lasted more than just a few years, right? It's only the greatest of the great. And we we call the kings great if one of two things happen. Either they're extremely benevolent or they're extremely dictatorial and brutal. And that's the only way they survived for any period of time. They were either well-loved or they were extremely feared and almost no middle ground beyond that, right? Because if they were just lukewarm, they didn't last. There was someone more brutal depends. or there was someone that was better, more benevolent. Yeah, and it depends too on who you ask sometimes. To this day, you know, there are countries that have kings. I know that the king of Saudi Arabia, for example, is well-loved by many and hated by many others, right? And it just depends on who you are sometimes. It depends on uh, where you fall in the, in the pecking order. Right. So let's talk about the construct of sacrifice within uh, mimetic theory. What is the purpose of, of sacrifice as he sees it in, in human nature? Why, do we, why must we sacrifice those who desire what we desire? Well, in having told the story of Apollonius of Tiana, I think I've given a lot away, right? I told that story right in the middle of the 10 points, and it speaks to all 10 of them in some way. So the scapegoating mechanism is going to serve to unite the people who are in strife with one another, right? Um, this is what this is the same thing we saw in the Middle Ages in, in Christianity, right? In the in the Crusades, you had so many Christian factions warring with one another, and somebody brilliant, uh, someone. I mean, it's funny because now he's uh, Satan, right? He's the accuser. Says, "Hey, go get go take back Jerusalem from the infidels." Right, and by the way, you'll get paradise if you do. 
Uh, so this is long before you had any Muslim suicide bombers. And of course, there were the Tamil Tigers who were atheist suicide bombers uh, in between, right? But yeah, that's the same idea, right? We're going to unite everybody against a common enemy. And if you just kill that enemy, then you have peace. And this is the Pax Romana, putting it back in Christ's context, right? In the context of Jesus of Nazareth, the Pax Romana was, the Roman peace was, the idea that if you just bring everyone under subjugation, if you conquer the whole world, then the whole world will now be under Roman rule and there would be peace. The problem with this scapegoating mechanism is it only works temporarily, which means it doesn't actually work. I'll give an analogy. There's something called biodynamic farming. In biodynamic farming, you don't use pesticides. So when I visited a biodynamic farm for several days for some kind of seminary style learning, we were looking at the the kitchen garden right on this farm, this biodynamic farm, and we were told that there was this little pest, right, this little bug that was eating the plants. And so what they would do instead of using pesticides is they would bring in, they would find out what is the natural predator of that pest. And they brought in this little wasp and they introduced the wasp into the garden, the wasp that would eat the bug that was causing the problem. And so that's how they dealt with it. And this completely eliminates the, the problem in this case, right? Whereas you ask the neighbor, hey, have you dealt with your pest problem? And he said, yeah, I sprayed. And the biodynamic farmer knows, no, that's not a solution. That only works until you have to spray again. And it's the same thing with scapegoating. It's going to end up happening. It's going to have to happen again for it to work. Well, and on the heels of just talking about Satan and his role in this this whole thing, that's really where the sacrifice comes in because Satan is actually a tool for bringing peace to civilization. And it's it's a different kind of peace than maybe you would aspire to or think is ideal, but it's the primary form of peace that exists in the world today. He's the prince of this world, right? Yes. And, and the peace of this world that Jesus talks about is Satan's peace. It's the Pax that's Romana right. in in a larger global sense, it's the same as the Pax Romana. And that is killing through violence, or a peace through violence. Hey, you know, that reminds me, you know, when Jesus says, my peace, yeah. I give unto you. Not like the world, right? Yeah. And he says, after I'm gone, there'll be a paraclete. Now we translate the paraclete, that's the Greek, right? Parakletos, paraklete. As yeah, comforter. Yeah. As comforter, as the Holy Ghost. But the meaning of paraclete is advocate. Defense intercessor, mediator, yeah. helper, exactly. A mediator for the victim. Mm-hmm. No more victimization, no more scapegoating. Which is really the apocalypse vision or unveiling that the cross is meant to give us. And, and okay, I'm going to go into something here. Last conference, we had this talk from Elder Holland about why we don't use the cross as a as a means of symbolism or um, iconography. Paul did. Yeah, well, I mean, all of them really the, did. It's interesting, you know, the earliest gospel, sorry, the earliest New Testament author is Paul. The gospel writers come later. Paul doesn't say anything about the life of Jesus. Who cares about the life of Jesus? That's not the point. The point is the cross. That's his focus. That's the, the revelation that Jesus provided for us. That That's what his yeah. whole life pointed at. And if we if we miss this point, we're missing the distinction between the peace of the world, which is satanic peace, and the peace that Jesus leaves us after he's crucified. And the distinction Rene Girard would have a see between mythology 
and Christianity. Right. So we're coming to that still. Yeah. Are we going to elaborate on that a little bit about why Christianity is not a myth? We're getting there. Okay. I, I couldn't remember we're, if that's getting one of the there. questions. That's the eighth point. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So are we there? <laughs> so the seventh point. Oh, we're on seven. How is it that be, that human beings become gods has kind of already been answered, right? And again, in telling the story, I kind of gave that away, right? The idea is given that the victim, given that the scapegoat is deemed the cause and solution of all our problems, they must be a god. Right? That's the long and short of that. Is this a good time to bring up this episode where Peter denies he knows Christ? Because it's a, it's almost like we all know he's fulfilling this prophecy that Jesus himself makes where he says, you know, you'll deny me three times and then the cock will crow or whatever. But there seems to be uh, an unveiling of purpose here and an unmasking of, again, this difference between the world's peace and Jesus's peace. Because by, right. by conforming with the mob, by wanting to be part of this crowd that doesn't recognize Jesus for who he is, the Christ, he's sort of saying, this is human nature. This is what we do. We, yeah. we join in crowds because we want peace. And, it, and it's when this, whether it's you know, figurative or literal, when this cock crows, it brings to mind for him, oh, wow, this is what I was supposed to learn right here. This it's is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. Isn't that interesting? When do, yeah. when do cocks the crow? The cock crows and wakes you up. By the way, it's also interesting to note that there's another story with a cock, and that's the story of Socrates. Socrates was accused falsely Right? He's made a scapegoat, and he chooses to die, which is the same story with Jesus. He actually chooses to die. He's going to submit. But his reason for submitting is, I'm going to submit to the law. It's my responsibility. Because his friends come where he's in prison. He can't be immediately executed. By the way, it's it's funny he gets executed at all, given what we've said, right? Because if you slow things down enough, then it shouldn't work. But his friends do come, see? while he's in prison waiting for the end of the festival to be executed. And they offer him a means of escape. Right? By the way, he was offered exile. And that's one of the ways that scapegoats are dealt with, right? There's just exile. Talk about the They're two goats in Leviticus, killed. right? So they, don't, they right. don't always just go and kill the second goat, right? They exile the goat. They send it out into the wilderness. Just go away, out of sight, out of mind. Then that actually helps the community deal with their own guilt about the persecution of the scapegoat because they don't actually kill it. We're just going to send it out there into the wilderness. Then we don't have to tell ourselves so many stories about how evil it was. So then with uh, Socrates, you have that his friends are offering him a means of escape from not having to be executed, but he already turned down exile. Now, of course, in the ancient world, exile is kind of a big deal because you would be a stranger in a strange land. It's not that big of a deal to be a stranger in a strange land today as it was then, and yet it's still difficult. If I said to you, hey, would you like to abandon your country of origin and go live in another country and you could never come back? You'd probably turn me down on that offer, right? I don't know that you'd want to die instead. Maybe if I threatened your life, you would go. But you can see why somebody wouldn't want to go away. But for Socrates, it's more than that. He wants to uphold the law. Even, even though the law accused him unjustly, he has a respect for the law, he says, and he wants to teach this to his disciples who are talking to him. At any rate, his final words before he drinks the hemlock, maybe even after, I think it was after he drank the hemlock, his final words before he dies, right? He's drunk the poison and he says, I owe Asclepius a cock. And this is interesting because, right, here's another cock in this story. But that cock 
is used for a sacrifice. In the Jesus story, the point of the cock is to wake you up from the scapegoating mechanism, right? To, to end the obfuscation that makes scapegoating possible. And so how is the Bible unique, Riley? That's point eight, question eight. Yeah, and Gerard would argue that what makes Christianity different in this respect is the resurrection. And, and it's really illustrated that all in the, in the sense that all the apostles, they either denied him like Peter did, they either were a traitor to him like Judas was, or they just left him. They abandoned him and went back to their lives. They didn't uh, stand up for him at his most crucial hour of being uh, tortured and killed. They, they all abandoned him, every single one of them, and they went back to their lives. So they either were scapegoating him like everybody else. Or they were washing their hands like Pontius Pilate. Right. So there, there's a passivity there that it makes them just as guilty as anyone else, right? Um, so after the resurrection, though, this is another wake-up call. He visits these apostles and says, wait a second, why are you going back to your regular lives? I, didn't I tell you, it, right at the end of Matthew, the very last chapter points this out, go to every nation, kindred, tongue, people, and go and declare my word. And they went back to fishing. I don't know if Matthew went back to tax collecting, <laughs> but but they all pretty much went back to their own, you know, their old lives as if things never even happened. Well, we thought this was going to be different, right? He's the Messiah and now he's dead. And, right. you know, he ended up scapegoated like everybody else, yeah. right? What's, yeah. And so it's it's the recognition of the victim as an innocent victim. It helps too that in the story of Jesus that he's not only not guilty of whatever he's being accused of, but of anything at all, according to, you know, the the standards that they have. He's not guilty of anything. Right? He hasn't done anything ever. And another reason why the resurrection is so important is you can see there's a black and white to this whole thing. Out of sight, out of mind. Jesus was essentially exiled. Okay. He's exiled to death. And, and so he's out there and he's no longer, I mean, they can be sad about it or whatever, but not feeling like there's going to be any consequence to their passivity, to their abandonment of Jesus, they can go back to their regular lives. And it's only once they completely believe that, yeah, he's, he's resurrected, you know, and, and he does see us. He sees us. We're not anonymous. We can't just go back to our lives because we're being seen. And so there's an unveiling, you know, the apocalypse means unveiling. The apocalypse happened for them the moment they saw Jesus. And so they're, yeah. they're seen at that moment. They can't hide. And so there's no place to hide. And where, so what do they have left to do? They have to do what's right. They, they do it. The greatest proof to me that something different happened at that moment is the fact that all these apostles went forward and preached the gospel and, and did what they should have done the moment that, you know, Jesus passed on and they, they assumed the mantle. They did what they should have done after that. All of them ended up dying. At least those are, that's the stories, you know, by different cruel methods and whatnot. But, yeah. And so there, the gospel, right, the good news is there's peace. There's lasting peace. A different available. kind. Yeah. There's there's a new a new idea here that ends scapegoating once and for all. And so the next question is how are the gospels unique? The gospels are formally in their structure 
like myth, right? They really are. Gerard can admit that. But the difference, and by the way, the resurrection of the God is part of myth, right? That's not new either, Riley. It's really the identification with the victim as such, right? Because the scapegoat mechanism requires that the victim isn't actually seen as a victim. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the, the scapegoat is the cause and therefore worthy of death, right? If you identify with the victim now, the scapegoat mechanism doesn't work anymore. Well, and I kind of did this in reverse. You know, I talked about why the Gospels are unique, but the Bible itself is unique, too. I mean, you go to the Old Testament, and there are champions of the victim w within the prophets and, and, you know, Moses himself, the whole let my people go. They're always championing the victim. And you have this probably best illustrated in the story of Joseph who is the youngest of 12, and he becomes the whipping boy for all the older brothers and all their problems. He's the cause of all of it. And he becomes the goat of the family. Not the greatest of all time until later, the, the goat. He's the one that is sacrificed so that the rest of the brothers can have peace. He's the, he's the source of peace. And his life and his story best illustrate this process of divination that takes place when you when you sacrifice someone as the scapegoat. Scapegoat. He becomes essentially the king of their family. Yeah. So to tie a bow on the the uniqueness of the Bible and the gospel in general and the, the gospels in particular, let's go back to Matthew eleven again. Riley, why is Jesus saying, "Blessed is he who's not tripped up by me," right? Who's not offended, meaning scandalized. This is the Greek, scandalized. I'm not a stumbling block for him. Why would Jesus be a stumbling block? Why would he worry that people would see him as a stumbling block? Well, for one, he brings a different, it's a different message than we're used to. And it's, we've become so acculturated to the peace of Satan, the only kind of peace we know, which comes through scapegoating. And he's just hopeful and has faith that we can overcome our, our nature, which is to accuse and to desire and if we can overcome that, then he offers us the kingdom of God, which is always available to us. We have it available to us at all times, at all moments. We need only to grasp it. It doesn't. That's his peace. Yeah. And that's the peace that he offers. That's the peace of God. That's the kingdom of God on earth. Having, a, having an advocate, the paraclete for the victim. Yeah. Not just an accuser, the Satan, but an advocate, the paraclete. Yeah. That, and you know, think of it this way, Riley. It could be a stumbling block to our desire to use the scapegoat mechanism, right? Jesus is a stumbling block to the scapegoat mechanism because he's not actually a scapegoat. He's actually an innocent victim. Well, and Which, by the way, all scapegoats, all scapegoats were, are. but he's yeah. recognized. He's recognized as an innocent victim, and that would be a stumbling block. If you have the idea that the only way to get to peace is through uh, scapegoating, mimetic violence, then there's a stumbling block for you in Jesus because he's putting forward, as you said, a different idea. Yeah. But it requires that we abandon selfish desire. And this is a bigger, this is a much bigger question that we have to analyze here. Like why is the, why is desire the source of all of our problems? You know, we have this scripture, I believe it's in DNC 45 when it talks about Zion a bunch. Um, we know that, that there's enough in despair. The earth is full and there's enough in despair. But the, the corollary or condition to that is that we not be 
extremely selfish. So you can start to look at every society and you say a highly stratified society, a highly polarized society in terms of wealth distribution is typically one in which you have to scapegoat. You have to ignore the plight of the scapegoat, of the of the poor, the other. Um, and, and there's many different statuses that fit into this category of victim per se. But we have to essentially ignore the problems of society in order to have a highly polarized society, a highly um, wealthy and prosperous society almost demands that it's done at the expense of someone else. And I'm not I'm not saying we live in this, uh, you know, fixed sum or zero sum world where where, you know, innovation can't continue to provide. I mean, we've seen this. The Industrial Revolution provided amazing leaps in in wealth uh, for everyone. It was like a rising tide that lifted all boats. But it's the it's the polarization that starts to really best illustrate the the scapegoat mechanism in full effect in society. And so Jesus says, look, the only way we cancel or or uh, get out of this system of corruption is by looking at our own desire. And I don't want to be a stumbling block to you, but I, I offer you a different kind of peace than the world offers you. And it's one in which your desires, they submit to higher purposes. I think that brings us to the last question, Riley. What is the basis for saying that the concern for victims is the new absolute value? Yeah, this is, this is a complicated question. We're, we're very much in a victim mentality culture right now. Um, this idea of intersectionality where we, we total up the sum of all of our categories of victimization. And we say, you know, here's my victimization score. Here's my intersectionality score. And I'm part this and I'm part that. And because I fit into various victimized categories, therefore I now have power that I didn't have before. It's an interesting irony that we're using victim status to acquire and execute power over others. It's a counterfeit. It's a cat. This is again Satan's very. This Satan spirit is a counterfeit of of the godly spirit, which is that we're all one, all of one heart. There's no poor among us. That we look after each other and we're concerned for each other. The counterfeit of that is still I, I, me, me, but it's from the perspective of the perceived victim rather than the uh, oppressor. Should, should we call this a reverse scandal? Yeah, the script is flipped. Mm-hmm. It's still the same. It's still desire for power. Yeah, it's it's interesting to note, by the way, that after you know the the point of studying mythology and comparing it with Christianity was to dismiss Christianity, and that's where the scholars ended up, right? That's where you know people like Nietzsche started us off, and we went down that road with structuralism, and yet the the focus on victim, not the not the reverse scandal that you're talking about. But our concern for victims that makes that even possible comes from Christianity. Right? So we've set aside Christianity, but we've kept Christianity on the one hand. On the other hand, those of us who are Christians who missed the point of Christianity and were participating in the scandalizing and the accusing have also missed the point of Christianity. There's a huge opportunity for repentance here, as the King James Bible translates metanoia, or in other words, a more literal translation, a change of mind. If we could just change our minds, if we could wake up and smell the cot, wait, we're not supposed to smell coffee when we wake up. If we could hear the cock crow and wake up, right? Then we might get that there's a different peace 
right? That's available through Jesus Christ. We're constantly um, encountering scandalon and and ways of tripping ourselves up. And Jesus did a fantastic job of simplifying the message in the Golden Rule: love others as you love yourself. If we could focus in on that, this is something that's very difficult to twist. It's very difficult to twist loving others as you love yourself, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, loving God. This is very difficult to twist for one party against another. Well, and the the thing is, the problem is, is that our neighbor, that means the one who's close to us, by the way, the one who's closest to us, our, our best friends, our family members, the people who actually live next door, that is one definition of neighbor, but not the only one, the people who live next door, right? It's the people who are close to us. They're the people we have scandal with. They're the ones whose desires we mimetically imitate, right? That's the problem. And that's why the solution is love your neighbor. Well, Chris, this has been a great discussion. I think this is a great systematic way of looking at the Girardian ethic, the uh, mimetic theory of imitative violence. And we invite our listeners to join us on this because we're, we're, not, we're going to spend more time on it. We're going to be in this mode for a little while applying this lens to various things that we talk about. And in the coming weeks, we've got a special surprise for you that, I, I mean, I guess we could reveal it now. We're going to invite Max Sterling himself to come onto the program. He's, he's already accepted that invitation, but we're going to have him on in a few weeks. And he's going to share some experiences that he had, not only meeting Gerard in person, interviewing him, but also spending a good portion of his life thinking through these ideas how he applies them in in the LDS sense, but also just the larger picture of uh, mimetic theory and and what a great value it is as a as a lens as a hermeneutic to apply to our study. So we're going to be in this mode for a while. It's going to be fun. Yeah, there's another uh, thinker who who took Gerard's ideas and ran with them and wrote a book, Violence Unveiled. That's Gil Bailey. I mentioned him to you pre-show, and you mentioned to me that. He was also known to Max Sterling. So I'll have to ask him about Joe uh, Gil, yeah. Joe, Gil Bailey. Gil. Yeah. Gil Bailey. Yeah. I guess they were, he and Gerard were close anyway. And it was Gil Bailey who introduced Mac to Gerard and gave him the opportunity for the, the interview that I mentioned. And we'll get into that history with Mac. He's going to tell us his whole story. It's going to be a lot of fun. So looking forward to that. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you, Riley, for being with me. And thanks to our editors, podcast editors, the whole team of Latter-day Peace Studies volunteers. We're an all-volunteer team. We put in a lot of time. All of you do. Thank you all for your uh, participation. And thank you for listening and for donating. Uh, Latter-day Peace Studies is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Your donations are tax deductible. Thank you for listening, everyone. Have a great week.